Hello and welcome to The Watering Hole, a podcast for in-house lawyers brought to you by Stevens and Law. In this podcast, I interview in-house lawyers on top of their game, gaining insights from their experiences, challenges and hard-earned wisdom. I'm Alice Stevenson, the founder and CEO of Stevenson Law. Without further ado, let's begin. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Francesca Porter. Francesca is the General Counsel and Executive Team Member at Onfido, a fast-growth AI company who digitally proves people's real identities using a photo ID and facial biometrics. So it's great to have you here, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So I think it would be great maybe if we could just start with a little bit about you and your background and, and also why you chose a career in law. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've always loved reading and writing. I, I, I studied law, but I have to say my mum was a lawyer and my dad was a lawyer. And um, my mum said to me, don't be a lawyer, do something else. And uh, I did consider various other things. I was very interested in science at school. I did a few placements with doctors and realized I was inherently very queasy around blood. Um, and, and to be honest, watching my mom, she was a real inspiration for me growing up. She uh, was a very strong woman and is a very strong woman. And she uh, had a, a fantastic career. She's retired now from the law, but it, it, it showed me that um, she, it was a great platform for other things. So my mom uh, was a lawyer, for a very long time she was a partner she never went in-house of course being in-house was quite different when she was a lawyer and uh, there wasn't maybe as many exciting opportunities as there are now and she then used all of that experience to go into business um, with my stepfather afterwards and it was a great platform into business for her and I've I, you know to be she was probably my, my mentor and one of the main reasons for, for going into law. That's so nice um, my dad was also a lawyer um, and he was always telling me to be a lawyer. And for such a long time, I resisted. I was like, absolutely not. It's the last thing I want to do. And actually, I started a career in HR um, because and law wasn't my first career because I was so I was so determined to um, to not do what he wanted me to do. <laughs> Which is tell your children to do one thing and they'll do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem to be that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but how lovely that your mum was such a great role model for you I think she, she used to always have um you know uh, not just family members but but friends and and men and coming around to the house to ask her for advice and you know what it's like when you're a lawyer people want they think that you know how to do property law and estate law and wills and probate and, and so on and and you're, you're thinking to yourself wow I'm really I'm really not qualified in all these areas but my mum used to always have people coming over to the house and asking her for, for advice and it, it really it showed me what a big strong voice that she had because of this kind of qualification and and it's probably worth saying that my mum was the first person in her family to go to university so it, it was it was something that that I know that her mum was very proud about as well and um, having never sort of gone down that kind of education uh, path herself and when I had children, actually, um, my mum, you start kind of revisiting things. And I, I was asking my mum you know, about the time when she was on maternity leave because she she had four of us. Um, and she sort of said to me that her mum had said to her, 
she she wasn't sure about going back to work and her mum had said to her don't you dare give it up you know you've got this amazing amazing opportunity and I would have would have loved that and um you know she 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 did carry on working she had a fantastic career amazing um okay so I think it would also be really great if you could talk a little bit about the experience that you've had before you joined on Fido because I know you spent about five years in private practice um, and then you sort of transitioned into working in-house. So could you sort of tell us a little bit about, about that and, and how you kind of led to going in-house? Absolutely. I, I worked at um, Hogan Lovells. I trained and qualified there into the commercial and corporate team. And I was doing a bit of a blend, but I always really preferred the commercial work. And I had a great experience there. I, I had amazing training. I got to work on so many different types of contracts from, you know, wind farms in the Baltics to working for the Mars Group on lots of different um, kind of uh, consumer style contracts, entertainment agreements, lots of technology, um, telecoms. And I was headhunted um, for a role at HP. And, you know, I actually really hadn't actively been looking. But the headhunter, he came through to um, my direct line in the office and it just sounded like a really interesting opportunity. And I've been at uh, Hogan Lovells for five years, as I mentioned, and it was very broad range that I was working on then. And it was an opportunity to specialise more. I think it's also worth saying that I did always really love business and I wanted to be closer to a business. So we used to sign contracts in private practice um, and then they would flit off into the ether. You wouldn't hear about if they got litigated, what went well, what went badly, how that pricing clause, you know, ends up working. Did they invoke the RPI or COLA clause? You never really, you never saw that aspect of it. And all the thinking that goes into the contract, you're not sure how it actually gets interpreted and applied by the business. And when I, I when I got headhunted for this role at HP, I, I didn't speak to anyone else. I didn't do a market survey. It just felt right. I'm a big believer in when things feel right and things present themselves that, that to go for it. And I, I think it was the team that, that really persuaded me and a man called Rob Putland, who was the deputy general counsel back then. And he had amazing energy and he's really interested in economic levers of business and how those contracts are applied and interpreted. And, and when I joined HP, I had the, the real business experience that I was craving and I was looking for. And I have to say all those clauses and contracts that before, you know, I'd get to the audit clause, I'd be skimming it thinking, God, this is a boring clause. I got to actually see like how much that hits a business when you're having these audits and how expensive it is and what a distraction it is for um, compliance teams and so on. And, and all of those, those aspects of a contract that previously had been quite academic became inherently very practical. And it really just kind of came together in a way that it hadn't done before for me. So uh, I had a, a fantastic time at HP. Um, uh, they actually went through huge transformation while I was there splitting up from uh, a sort of HP, which had enterprise, which was the services, um, software, cloud, selling all the different bits off. So I managed to keep up some of my corporate and did one of the biggest corporate separations, I think um, in history with the splitting of HP Inc and HP Enterprise. And after three years there where they'd sort of 
sold off lots of different bits, uh, it was time to move on and, and find a new challenge. And that led you to Onfido? It did. I thought, well, I've been at a huge enterprise company with, um, you know, sadly declining revenue. Why not go somewhere really small with um, you know, inclining revenue and have a go at building the systems and processes? And, and I learned a lot about best practice at um, HP in terms of governance and deals and uh, approvals. And uh, some of it was like slow and time consuming because it was such a big company, but it was also very advanced. And moving to Onfido, when I first got to the company, we were um, 100 people just above Covent Garden Tube Station. And there's lots of developers walking around in their socks and, you know, sort of free fruit. And there wasn't enough meeting rooms for everyone. So I remember one time having a, a, a closing a deal negotiation and um, Jamie's Italian around the corner because we didn't have enough space in the office. <laughs> and that was actually with the deputy general counsel of um, Remitly now, uh, Anthony Olsen. And we still have a, a bit of a giggle about that. But uh, it was it was a big kind of change. And I got to bring some of the good things, good process sort of things that I'd learned at HP. But then also I didn't want to slow down a very small business. So it's kind of adjusting those and, and moving uh, with the company as it grew to make them more mature and, and trying to take the good things and leave behind the bad things. So were you their first in-house lawyer or how big was the legal team when you joined? So when I joined, it was one other lawyer and she had been at Google before and she was the general counsel called Emma Jelly. And she actually was one of the main reasons I wanted to join on Fido because she was really inspiring, is really inspiring woman. She's actually um, a coach now, but she was not at Onfido for very long because Brexit then happened and she moved back to Finland. Um, but she did hire another fantastic lawyer, Neil Cohen, who um, he was the privacy lawyer. So then it was Neil and I on our own for a bit. And, you know, we built the contracts. Neil started the privacy program. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, we were really we, you could see the impact straight away, which is really, really rewarding. You know, being in a company that small um, and being able to help that much uh, was great. But I'd be lying if I said there wasn't some sleepless nights to start with because there was so much to do. And you could just sort of see you're a lawyer, so you, you see risk everywhere. <laughs> what kept what what kept you awake at night the most? I think it was probably the fact that the company was had this um product, and this is still something that does keep me up. Um, it has a product that it can sell globally, and that we ourselves are not directly regulated but our customers are. And so I, you know, I'd, I'd be told, oh, we've just signed a deal with a, a customer in Iraq. And I'd say, well, we haven't done legal discovery there. And I'd have to go and try and really quickly learn about what, what you know, the data protection laws in that country were and learn about um, if we had any licensing requirements and so on and so on. Uh, and it, it, sometimes that would be the thing that trying to, the pace of, of growth and and change and selling into new markets and uh, trying to keep up from a legal perspective and put the right processes in place to make sure that we are expanding in a way that was um, that wasn't going to cause us problems down the line. And I think the best um, sort of phrase I've heard about this is trying to be an airbag and not a seatbelt. Love it. And take you know take the business. And I was working with quite young founders as well then, and and the idea of saying no to revenue is, is kind of strange I suppose to them to start with so trying to kind of educate them as well and, and bring them along on this journey with me of, of saying you know we need to do the right steps before we start selling into these new geos 
Um, that that was one of the things that, that used to keep me up. Yeah, that makes sense. So how big is your team now and where, where are they based? So it, it, it started obviously with just me and Neil and we didn't have functions like legal operations or um, policy then. And I now manage the, uh, the legal team, privacy and the policy team. And all in all, we are about 18 people and we have a couple more joining this year. And they are, uh, we've got three in the US one policy person who helps with federal government and two lawyers in the US, um, one in France who helps with EMEA and also a lot of regulatory um, scoping and scanning, horizon scanning, and then the rest of them are currently all in the UK, but supporting other countries as well from the UK, such as APAC. Pause the podcast because I want to talk to you a little bit about our legal community called The Watering Hole. Our exclusive community of in-house lawyers come together online to network and impart knowledge. We host exclusive Legal Bite sessions, quarterly meetups, and members also benefit from a merch-packed welcome package and a monthly online magazine curated for the in-house lawyers called The Pool. Membership to the Watering Hole community is completely free, but spaces are limited. So if you want to join, then check out the link in the description of this episode. Right, back to the podcast. And are you are you back in an office now or are you a remote team? How, how have you kind of set things up now? So Onfido made the decision, like a few other tech companies uh, when uh, during lockdown, everything worked well and people was, productivity didn't dip. And so we decided to make the move of being fully remote of uh, saying, if you want to work from home, you can 100% of the time. We do still have the office, however, and I like to go in two or three days a week. I've got other team members who like to do the same. Um, we, I think it's important still to come together, especially when you've got younger team members who, who need to train and learn. And, and sometimes that kind of osmosis that happens in the off- office, those water cooler questions, um, that, that, that can be really helpful, especially for new joiners. Um, so we try to go, um, some of the, the more senior members of the team, we try to be in for things like team meetings just once a week um, at a minimum. But, but you know, it, it, we want to be flexible around people's lives as well. I have members of the team now who are based in Newcastle um, or outside of London, and they might not come down as much. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, on a case by case basis. And I would never say that somebody has to be in the office. That's not the company's policy. Um, it, it is, it's a case of what works for you and uh, what can make, what, how you commit your career success at Onfido. And some people might find that it's better for them to come in for a few meetings, not just for meetings with the legal team, but to build relationships with other teams. If you're, for example, the privacy team have to have really strong relationships with the product team and the tech team. They need to be embedded into that really early build process, especially with all the products that we're releasing this year. And so it's helpful for them if they have those rapports. And, and I think this, it's been proven that, that relationships are obviously much better if we meet in person, that release all kinds of chemicals that you don't get over Zoom. And um, so, so certain people, I think, will find it's even more important than others in their role to, to be in. But, but like I said, we're very flexible. And this week, um, the legal team have decided to self-fund a trip to Lisbon and work in the Lisbon office. 
So they, a lot of them flew over over the weekend and they've decided they're just going to have a week working out in the Lisbon office. We've got lots of engineers and product team there. So they'll be using that opportunity to speak with them and, and form relationships with them. And I think they've got some product deep dives and so on. So yeah, it, it, we make it work for us. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's really great to hear. I mean, we're, we're now fully remote and actually we don't have an office. So we gave up our office during the pandemic um, and our team has expanded so much um, and is now so geographically di- dispersed that I think even if we had an office, um, it would it wouldn't be particularly practical. So but I agree with you that still getting people together is really important. Um, so we kind of have little um, pools of people in Bristol and London and Newcastle and and we use sort of um, shared co-working spaces where they can they can get together and, and use those um which I think you know it, it it works I think there's no kind of perfect solution really I think um it's a lot harder to be visible when everybody's working remotely I think you have to put in that extra effort um like you were saying to make yourself visible to other teams and things like that it's 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 definitely more challenging um but I think overall everybody generally feels like they've got a bit of a better balance yeah, I agree. You've got a family. It's, I was going to say, you know, for me working two or three days in the office and then um, the rest at home means that those mornings, you know, you've got an hour with your children that you wouldn't have. So it does. It, but then, you know, after three days of working at home and with uh, and having, you know, the, the mornings of the children, I can't wait for the quiet time on the tube. <laughs> yeah. Having the mix to blend. I know the feeling well. So I'm sure that there is no such thing as a standard day for you, but but can you give us a bit of an insight into kind of what your day to day looks like? Yeah, so I'd say it's it's a mixture. I have um, a mixture. I try to meet with all of my direct reports for a one on one once a week. So uh, I've got five direct reports. So I try and have 45 minutes with them. So I have one of those probably each day where we're talking about uh, items that they and the team are working on, anything that needs escalating. I flow information down to them, they flow information up to me, uh, and we kind of join the dots. And I think that's increasingly important with the remote working model as well. Um, so that you, you know we can be aware of we're not working in silos. We call it breaking silos. Is that one of our themes for this quarter that we, we discussed in our legal offsite and how we can break silos more and make sure that everybody has visibility of, of what's happening so that we can help each other when things have been done before and issues brought and so on. Um, and then I have a, a meeting with the executive team um, once a week as well. Uh, and so today, for example, is a Monday, I have an hour and a half with them where we um, sort of talk about uh, key strategic issues, topics, make decisions. Um, I, and this is something that's been happening increasingly, but uh, I uh, try and block out like at least a couple of hours for like deep thinking and work time each day. So I've got various projects that I'm working on, um, a piece of litigation that I'm uh, supporting at the moment, um, and also supporting some strategic um, work streams around uh, the company's growth. Um, So making sure that I've got some time blocked out to do deep dives and uh, on that, I think, uh, and to produce the memos, the one pages, the checklist, the sales training materials, 
and it's it's something that I try and uh, do every day I'm still very much involved in um, the day-to-day work so um, you know whether it's I've got a customer call for example today um, at two and uh, got corporate meeting and after that there'll be review of various documents so uh, although um, I do have uh, quite a substantial team there's still uh, I do a lot of the actual um, work myself as well I just say that it's probably more project work rather than deal work these days yeah so what do you what do you love most about your role what do you enjoy the most so I want to say the people because I love training development helping to coach people um uh, that that is something that I think that you remember that the you forget the work when you leave a company or a firm you you, you don't remember the day-to-day work but you really do remember the people um so there's, there's that that is definitely the thing that I enjoy the most but the different part from what I previously used to do as an individual contributor to where I am now as general counsel that I love the most is that I love the strategic element so um, and it was quite sticky for me. I, my previous um, uh, manager, Amy, uh, she, we had. I remember we had a conversation when I got promoted to um, director, where she said, and she said, you, "You're going to have to be less end to end and all over what you're working on, so that you can be across more." And that was there was a bit of a time where it was a bit sticky. I, you know, I, I was used to end to end running, um, a, you know, a deal or a process or um, drafting everything myself, doing everything myself. And it meant that I would be focusing on one thing, two things, three things at a time. Um, and her point was, you know, if you're going to be across 20 things and manage a team, then you're not going to be able to do all of it yourself, but you need to be able to jump into the important bits, understand what detail matters, and then be across more. Um, and it took it took me a while to kind of get that. But now I think, well, I, I love that because I have oversight over so much different um, information and so many different things that I can join the dots for other team members and say oh that that thing that is happening over here is is linked to this over there we should be thinking about that um, an example is you know we, we've been maturing our machine learning models so that we can um, uh, delete in a particular way at a very granular level so that we are um, maintaining the uh, the, the information that we need to train our, our models without actually aggregating data that we don't need so that we can reduce the amount that we're storing altogether. And when key decisions are being made around um, build, building our deletion 2.0 model, I'm also aware of, although I'm not leading it end to end, I'm involved in our insurance renewal project. And I will understand that the insurance market is changing and I'll understand what our insurers are wanting to see and what they're concerned about. And, you know, the, the challenges in re- renewing levels in certain countries like the US, where there, there's you know, this big changing legislative scene around um, class actions and biometrics. And I can really kind of join the different dots up and feed in insights from somewhere far left and to somewhere far right. And, and for me, I find that really rewarding. Yeah, I think I can totally relate to that in my role as well, actually. I think mm-hmm. I think it was a steep learning curve, but... But it's one of the things that I enjoy the most, I think, about what I do. So you've talked a couple of things about a couple of things that have been challenging, the kind of managing the risk side of things and, and obviously what you just talked about. But at the moment, what would you say is the most challenging aspect of working for a tech scale up and how do you manage it? 
That's a really good question. I I think that there's oh, there's a few different answers that I could give here. Um, I I think what the one that I'm going to focus on because we've obviously done some work together on this actually, Alice. Um, the one that I'm going to focus on is that when when I joined on Feeder and it was a, a startup of 100 people and it was founder led. The, you know, the culture was was really what attracted me to the company and the culture um, was absolutely fantastic. And it was, we're all small, we're in the office every day, seeing each other and we were really sort of um, hustling and striving and, and pushing the company. And um, you know, it, there were challenges then as well, because you're a small company and the people doing three, four roles really. Um, and as we've grown, you end up with more specialists and the company gets bigger. Um, and of course, when you're a specialist, you're focusing less more on your little window. And at the same time, we've had um, the fact that we've had COVID lockdown, people going remote, and we are now nearly 700 people. So we're seven times bigger. We're in many, many more countries and geographies. And we, are, we have more specialists focusing on their individual aspects. Um, and people are also remote a lot more and at home. Um, and so preserving culture uh, and preserving um, that, that kind of same attitude of like kind of hustling and, and desire to win at the same time as being under quite a lot of pressure because we're, we're like many technologies, we're really in a technology race. There are lots of businesses in identity now. Um, it's a very competitive space. We are having to bring out multiple products to market to keep up. Um, we our competitors um, do things like competitor takedowns where they find out areas of our technology and then they sort of, you know, exploit them or, or, or um, discuss them with our customers. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure at the same time as those real bonds that kept us close and kept us together when we were smaller in person in one location and um, becoming weaker. And so preserving culture and supporting um, on feeders to deliver and to be happy in their day-to-day -day roles um, is probably one of the biggest challenges as we get bigger. And um, I know that recently you were fantastic in supporting us really flexibly um, with setting up an employee hotline to support employees who you know, maybe have issues that uh, they they don't feel comfortable speaking to their manager about or their or the people team about um so that we can actually support individuals to feel um psychologically safe supported and um also able to you know resolve any problems that they might have um without sort of sitting at home and not knowing who to speak to so there's a big sort of cultural hr and also values piece that i think becomes um a real focus for scale ups that when you're a small startup, it just, it, it's not so much of an issue. Yeah. I mean, again, I think I can relate to that, but on a much smaller scale, I mean, we're 40, we're only 40 people now. So compared to where you are and even where you were when you joined, we're still a lot smaller, but having gone from sort of 12 to 40 people in a relatively short space of time, there's still a massive cultural impact yeah. on that. And combined with the fact that everybody's working remotely and, um, it does make make a really big difference and it's um, you have to kind of intentionally manage that you can't just let it no. just do what it's going to do can you but also congratulations Alice because that's fantastic I, I mean another thing I could have focused on is the war on talent out there from a legal perspective and how hard it is to hire and to have managed to go from 12 to 
40 and to attract so many um, strong lawyers over to your team is, is, is brilliant. So well done. Oh, thank you. Well, it's definitely helped, I think, being remote because now we can now we can sort of hire from all over the country. Um, and that's made a big difference to to our ability to find really good people. So but yeah, we've got a great team. Um, OK, so. I mean, obviously, the experience of an in-house lawyer within a scale-up is going to vary really sort of wildly depending on what the actual business is. But if you were talking to somebody who was considering working, going to work for a a tech scale-up, what advice would you give them and what do you think they should look out for? So I think the most important characteristic of somebody going to work at a tech scale-up is adaptable being adaptable and um, uh, being prepared for the pace of change. So if, if you're somebody who likes to go into the office every day, know exactly what you're working on um, and feel sort of comfortable in your uh, the realm of your knowledge, then you know perhaps it's not the right environment for you. Um, but if you're somebody who likes to be challenged daily with new situations, um, new uh, questions, and the pace is fast. And if you you can if you find that exciting and, and interesting, and you've got that kind of growth mentality where you 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 like the fact that you're seeing a broad range of different um, uh, work requests and um, projects, and that you're having your risk tolerance tested, and you're having you're able to justify your positions from a business perspective, not from a legal perspective, um, from a business perspective. Then I think that um, uh, you know it could be a great role for somebody looking to go into a tech scaler. But be prepared for that. Be prepared that that you have to be adaptable, and you have to be yeah. um, embracing of change. And I think there's a second part of that question, wasn't there? Yeah. Just and I guess in terms of choosing a tech scaler to work for, do you think are there any kind of red flags that you think people should look out for, or you know, because there's you know there's so much choice out there now. If you want to work for that type of business, how do you how do you pick a, a good one? Well, I'll tell you what I suggest to people who come and interview with us if they are trying to make their mind up for, uh, between a few different places. And that is, you know, you can go through the interview process and meet the individuals in an interview environment. But then if, if you're really trying to make your mind up and you're not sure, the best way to know is to speak to somebody in the team at your level about what their day-to-day lived experience is like. You know, an informal conversation, ask them, um, you know, what they're working on, ask them about, um, you know, what their hours are like, ask them about what the culture is like and, and get those kind of answers that you maybe don't feel confident asking the hiring manager in that situation. I think, I think that's a good way to, to, to kind of um, get to grips with uh, effectively what you may not have learned through the interview process. But then I think you, yeah. you've really got to choose a company, choose a company that you're interested in the underlying product and what they're doing and what they're trying to be in the world. And you, if you join, like, as much as you're going to be working on legal contracts and so on when you go into a business you've got to you've got to be interested in the business and hopefully it is a growth business but understanding what's happening within that market and and trying to decide whether or not that's something that has going to interest you for the next few years sufficiently um I think is important one of the reasons I chose on Vido is because I find AI 
um, and AI law really, really fascinating and interesting. And that is fast change. So look, remembering to, to actually do your research on what the company's selling and what that's going to mean for you day to day when you're discussing it and analyzing competitors and having that kind of market focused business centric approach as a lawyer to be commercial. Yeah, I think that's really a really good advice because that's, you know, really the key difference between working in a law firm and working in a business is that, you know, you, you have to understand the business and, and what they're doing and where their strategy is and, and all of those aspects of it. And if you don't care about that, then yeah, it's not going to work, is it? One last thing is if you like having an eye on your end goal, if you want to be a general counsel one day and that's your career trajectory, asking during that hiring process, Am I going? If, will I have the opportunity to work on a broad range of different things, or am I just going to be join, joining to work on one type of contract deal? You know, am I just going to be in the partnership, working on partnerships, or will I? If there's an, you know, fundraise, will I get the opportunity to work a bit on that? Can I get involved in the IP portfolio at some stage? Will I be able to do a secondment at one time, perhaps into the data privacy team? We we offer all of this because we we know that people join the team. And they want to learn a broad range of different areas. If they wanted to be a specialist, then they may have gone somewhere else or stayed in private practice. But what I hope is that we can equip members of our team to, you know, if they do want to go on and be a general counsel, to, to have that experience. If they don't, then that's fine too. They can focus on what they want to focus on. Yeah, great. Okay, so just before we wrap up, I'd be really interested to just get some of your insights on the legal profession as a whole. So... Firstly, what do you wish that your younger self knew about the profession? Is there anything? I I think that if there was one thing, it would be that is not every single legal job that I have had from Hogan Lovells to HP to Onfido has been really different. And I know that I, I know lots of lawyers who have really questioned whether they want to stay in law. Um, and I have a lot of friends who I studied with at the LPC who are fantastic lawyers who only ever worked maybe in private practice or and have decided to leave the law altogether. Um, and one of the things I wish that my younger self knew uh, and that I would say to um, other people early in their careers is, is that, you know, if, if at times you don't think the fit's right for you when you're um, practicing law somewhere, then don't think that that's the end of the road because this job can be different in so many different ways in so many different teams and companies and so I, I, I do believe that um, with those skills that you can you can really find what's right for you out there but that's not to dissuade people to to leave and follow their their passions and their and their loves because that's also very um, inspiring. It'd be interesting to to think about what where you would be now if that headhunter hadn't called you in your office at Hogan Levels. <laughs> I, I totally agree because I'm not I'm not sure that I'd found really like sort of my my true niche then, as I mentioned, because I, I love the business aspect so much. Um, but it is I do often wonder that. I feel quite yeah. fortunate that something fell in my lap in that way. So if you could change one thing about the legal profession, what would it be? I think with the service industry, and I'm not sure that it's just the legal profession, that people, um, that there's like a general reluctance um, to kind of uh, 
to fully appreciate how much it takes to provide services, whether it's the fact that, you know, when I was working at Hogan Lovells, we had lots of customers who didn't want to pay the, the bills, for example, um, or uh, when your, your customer is an in-house client, then there's a sort of, um, can you do it faster? Why can't you do it yesterday? And it's, it's sometimes it can be quite difficult to um, convey exactly the amount of thinking that goes into and and the amount of um uh, analysis that goes into providing um a piece of legal advice and so uh, i suppose it's not so much changing something about the legal profession as much as um helping people to kind of understand exactly uh, what is involved in being a good lawyer and that level of kind of acceptance um i suppose it is also a career that can be slightly challenging for um, women later in life because of the hours and linked to that point that I just made about um, the, the amount of thinking and time and analysis that goes into uh, pieces of work. Sometimes like the, the hours demands can be challenging. Um, I do think that the profession is evolving though. And I do think that there's more um, flexibility being provided. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to see that some of my um, friends at Hogan Levels who uh, are mums and are women are, are having opportunities to step forward now for partnership. Yeah. Um, okay, final question. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? What do you think you were destined to be a lawyer? On? If, I, if I wasn't a lawyer, I think I'd like to be um, a writer. So I, that's my sort of secret side passion. I uh, love writing. I've done, um, I did a novel writing course at the Faber Academy uh, a few years ago. And um, I think that being a novelist would be my my next favourite profession. Uh, but the problem with being a novelist is that you don't have a team. <laughs> oh, and you have to write a good book every year to pay the bills. I'm not sure I back myself <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Maybe you've got one good book in me. <laughs> That's so interesting. What would you write about? Well, I've, I've written two books already. I wrote one on the Faber course and one before that. Um, uh, one was like a sort of um, 12-year-old children's Harry Potter style book and, and the other one was a kind of uh, psychological thriller. So I think different different things. I just enjoy the, the immersive process of creation and writing. A creative lawyer. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> I think so. I think, uh, yeah, some, some I think are in denial because they're, um, you know, there's a bit of a stigma attached to it in some places, but I think it's, um, I think it's great. Well, Francesca, it's been such a pleasure having you on here. Um, I've kind of chatted to you all day. I think it's been super, super interesting hearing about your experiences and I'm sure that lots of others will find it super interesting. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Watering Hole podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. I'm Alice Stevenson and this has been brought to you by Stevenson Law, a legal services provider that supports fast growth tech businesses from idea to exhibit. See you next time.